Hi, everyone. You're listening to Who I Met Today, and I'm your host, Pam Lamp. I'm all about doing one tiny new thing every single day. And on this podcast, I invite you to come along with me and discover something new through conversations with people from all walks of life. I hope you enjoy listening to these interviews and exploring new territory with me. For more people stories and episodes, please visit my website, whoimettoday.com. World Honeybee Day is Saturday, August 19th. I decided I wanted to learn a bit more about the intelligent little creatures and their importance to our planet. My guest today is Mr. Kim Flottam, and I can't imagine anyone with greater knowledge of honeybees. And it's only fitting that World Honeybee Day is also Kim's birthday. Hi, Kim. Thank you for joining me today. Well, it's nice to be here. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I've recently read a couple of novels that I've really enjoyed. Both of them had honeybees and beekeeping in the background of the story. The first one was Mad Honey by Jody P. Cole and Jennifer Finney Boylan. And I apologize if I've botched the pronunciation of those authors' names. The other one was The Last Beekeeper by Julie Carrick Dalton. These books got me thinking about honeybees and their importance to us and how little I really know about them. And so I really appreciate you agreeing to offer us all a sort of Honeybee 101 course today. But before we dive into that, I cannot imagine anyone with stronger beekeeping knowledge. Kim, can you give listeners a cocktail version of your background? Well, after I graduated from high school way back when, I bounced around for a few years trying some things. And then one day I was in a store, much like a Walmart, and I was standing by a rack of plants and a lady came up to me and she said, don't you just love these? And I, standing there, I even standing there, I hadn't looked at them very much. And she proceeded to tell me what they all were, how to grow them, what were problems, you know, all of the things that she knew about plants. And I kind of went, well, okay. So I bought one, I took it home, I put it in a pot and it grew. And that sort of ignited my interest in horticulture and growing and all of that. So I, when I finally started college, I got a degree in horticulture and learned as much as I wanted. I wanted to grow up and run a greenhouse. That was my goal. But at the time, I was uh, in a lab at the University of Wisconsin, right next to the people. The USDA had a honeybee research lab on campus, and I got to know them pretty well. And the spring that I graduated, they got a grant from the USDA to study soybean pollination. And they knew all about pollination. And interestingly, I knew all about soybeans. So we put our heads together. And for four years, I did honeybee research with the USDA. When that grant expired, I stumbled across the owner of the AI Root Company here in Medina, Ohio. He was looking for an editor for his beekeeping magazine. The magazine was Gleanings in Bee Culture. And interestingly enough, I was looking for a job, so we put our heads together, and I moved here to Ohio about, well, in the late 80s, and I've been here doing bees ever since. Well, and what you neglected to say is that you host a very successful podcast, Beekeeping Today, which is how I discovered you. You have several beekeeping books under your belt. And the Bee Culture magazine, which you edited for 30 years, is kind of the go-to source for American beekeepers since the late 1800s. Did I get all of that right? 
You did. <laughs> Let's get right down to the basics. Why are honeybees so very important to us? Well, I can sum that up in a very quick question. Do you like to eat? <laughs> I indeed like to eat. Well, without honeybees, lots of food that we take for granted and it's commonly produced would be either difficult or impossible to produce. And you have to look at it this way. The apple that you had yesterday afternoon or the grape juice that you had for breakfast this morning is pretty much directly affected by honeybees because they pollinate the plants that produce those fruits. But they also pollinate plants that our farm animals eat, alfalfa and plants like that. So without the honeybees pollinating the alfalfa and creating that food, our farmers would be growing somewhat different plants, if any plants at all, to feed the animals that we use for food. And the third thing that they do, this is my favorite, but certainly not the most important, is they produce a wonderful product called honey. And you tie all those together. If you like to eat and you like to eat good food, honeybees are really important. Well, and let's talk a little bit about the honeybee community. If you are not a backyard beekeeper and have hives that you've built in your backyard, honeybees build nests where? Well, the, the natural nesting place for honeybees is very often the uh, cavity inside of a tree that's old, it's got a cavity in it someplace, and they will find that. And those kinds of cavities are generally very similar the ones that they find and occupy, they're inside a, a tree that's usually fairly large, so that insulates the hive and the bees inside in the winter, help keeps them warm, and insulates the hive in the summer, helps keep it cool. It's up high off the ground, which keeps them away from some of their predators. They've scoped out the size. It has to be a minimum size for them. And the other part of that is that given a choice in a great big forest, there would be about one honeybee colony per square mile. So they're not, they try not to get to a place that's competitive. So they're, you know, there's enough food for everybody. I know they're intelligent little creatures. I've read that. Tell us about their community, what it consists of. And I believe all the bees have different jobs. Well, if you just take a snapshot in time and you look inside that cavity in that tree I just mentioned, you're going to see in that cavity, you're going to see a queen bee. And a queen bee is, I'm not going to say the mother of the hive, but she plays that role also. A queen bee produces all of the babies in that hive. She lays eggs, the eggs hatch, and the bees in the colony take care of the babies until they're old enough to leave their cell and fly and either gather food or protect the colony as guard bees or gather water. There's a lot of activities bees get involved in, but it starts with the queen. And the queen produces a pheromone, and you can actually smell it if you know what you're looking for. And that pheromone does several things to the behavior of the bees inside it. It lets everybody know that the queen is here and all is good. That's the first thing it does. But it also tells the bees that there's a lot of brood to feed. We need more honey. We need more pollen. We need more guards out at the front door because other bees are trying to get in. It tells the bees it kind of gives an overall picture of what's going on in the hive. So when she lays an egg, and that egg, after three days, hatches, and it becomes a little grub-like creature, it grows up. It's fed hundreds of times a day by some of the bees that are in the hive that are just destined to be what we call nurse bees. 
That's what they do. They feed the young. As the baby bee grows, she finally gets to the point where, like a caterpillar, she's going to spin a cocoon, and she's going to go from a grub-like creature to a full-sized adult bee. So after 20, 23 days or so, she's going to exit that cell that she was raised in, and she now becomes a member of the hive. And the, the bees that first emerge, we call that emerging, they're kind of fragile. They don't know what, much about what's going on, so they kind of spend some time looking and learning. But they first start out by doing things like cleaning out cells that have old cocoons in them or maybe a little bit of honey left over from them. They're housekeeper bees. And they graduate from that after a week or so, and they become the nurse bees that I mentioned, and they feed the young, and they take care of what's going on in the hive, and they may be building more comb, taking care of what's inside. After a few more days, a week or so, they graduate to being foragers, and what they do then is they go out and they look for food. Interestingly enough, often they don't have to look for food because somebody already told them where there is food, and that's an older forager finds a, a field of dandelions and takes some nectar home from one of the flowers, comes back, she shares it with the bees in the hive, and she does this little thing called a dance. Depending on the dance that they do, the dance can tell the bees in the hive where that field of dandelions is relative to the location of the home that they're in. You know, do you go north, south, east, or west, away from the sun, towards the sun? How far it is and how far it is is determined by how long she dances. If she dances and dances and dances, it's a long ways away. And if she dances for just a few minutes, it's really quite close. So our house bee, now turned forager, listens to this bee dancing, watches her. She tastes the nectar that the bee brought back. She shares it with the bees inside. So she knows what she's looking for, what it looks like how it tastes and where it is, and she flies out. And very, very often, a majority of the time, she flies right to it. The other thing that goes on in a hive is there are guard bees. And the inside of a beehive is a rich feast for many, many predators. It has lots of protein in the baby bees. It has sweet honey. It has lots of protein in the adult bees if they can kill them. So the beehive is sets itself up so that it can repel most all predators. It has a small opening, and they sting, which is one of the things that most people know about bees is that they sting. So there you've got the queen, you've got the workers who have very a bunch of different kinds of jobs during their life, and you have one more member of the hive called the drone, and that's the male. And the drone bee's job only has one job in life. He never eats. He's always fed. He doesn't go out looking for things to do. He doesn't do any of the jobs in the hive. All he is to do is to mate with a queen from a different hive and pass on his genetics to a new hive. Well, I guess one of the wonders of the universe is how bees know all the things they do. When I was preparing <laughs> for our conversation, I came across all sorts of random, fascinating facts about bees. And one of the things I read was that the inside of a beehive is cleaner than an operating room. They're very tidy and neat little creatures. And I read a story of a mouse getting in to a beehive, and first the bees stung him to death, but then they sealed him off with a substance called propolis and then just continued to work around him, and that way their hive didn't get contaminated. But what is propolis? 
Propolis is a substance that bees gather as if they were foraging, but it's not nectar from a flower. It's the if you wound a tree, that's going to ooze some sap. And what bees do is they collect this sap from all the kinds of plants that produce it. So you've got a mixture. And the reason that trees ooze the sap is as microbial properties that allow it to protect itself from insects or other creatures that would take advantage of a wound on a tree and you know eat the sap and maybe wound the tree even more. So it's a protective sap that bees collect. They take it back to the hive. And because of the microbial activity that's active in that hive, and this is alive stuff. As you said, if a creature gets into the hive, they will cover this creature so that it doesn't decay and spread you know, all the things that can happen from a decaying mouse. But they also line, the entire inside of their, their hive is going to be lined with propolis. So they are encased in it, and they use it to protect themselves. And the inside of a hive is the bottom of the hive is going to be somewhat messy by our standards, but the walls and the ceiling are, I'm not going to say sterile, but they're approaching sterile because of this propolis material that they line their entire hive with. The bottom of the hive catches all of the stuff that falls, and they don't want that lined with propolis because then it would it would accumulate at the bottom and not be able to go anywhere. The stuff that falls in the hive, and sometimes it's a dead bee or sometimes it's wax from part of the things that they're producing inside or a dead mouse, they want that to be able to accumulate at the bottom and slowly dissipate, decay, and go away. Do you still have beehives? Yes, I've got a couple, three. Up here in Northeast Ohio, where I'm located, it's been just, from a bee's perspective, an awful spring. It's been cold and rainy and snowy, and we're late getting bees going this part of Ohio this year. But they're doing... You know, they're doing what bees do. They adapt. Do you collect honey from your hives? We do, and not too much. A colony in this part of Ohio needs about between 50 and 60 pounds of honey left on it in the fall, so they have enough to eat all winter. So when you're looking at late August or so, you're looking at how much is left, and you say, okay, I've got about 100 or 120 pounds of honey, or I can harvest some of that extra and, you know, extract it from the comb and put it in bottles and sell it or give it away or whatever. And if you don't have that much honey stored, then it becomes the duty of the beekeeper to provide enough so that they get through the winter, just like you do your livestock. Your cows can't go out to pasture in the winter and bees can't go out and forage in the winter, so you have to make sure that food's available. And so we'll feed them either sugar syrup or honey that we've gotten from other hives, making sure that there's enough. Kim, is all honey the same, store-bought versus farmer's market? I always try to buy it at a local farmer's market here, but is there a difference? Well, I always try and convince people to buy local honey because then you're supporting a local beekeeper, and that local beekeeper is keeping the flowers and the plants in your garden pollinated so that you have a good garden. So you're doing yourself a favor when you buy local honey because you're supporting local bees. I like that. Now, is Mad Honey, by the book of the same name that I mentioned earlier, is Mad Honey a real thing? Well, it's made from rhododendrons, and not just any rhododendron. I think I'm not familiar enough to know exactly where they grow, but it's not here in the U.S., I don't think. But it's honey that's made from rhododendrons, and it contains a compound that has some psychedelic effects. 
in the other book that I mentioned, The Last Beekeeper, all the bees have died off on the planet. And because they aren't pollinating the flowers for the food that feeds the humans and other species, then a lot of different animals have died off. Food is difficult to come by. People are starving. Got me to thinking, why are bees decreasing in the world? Well, there are several reasons, and they're not the same reason for every place in the world. Most places have some common problems, but many places have very distinct, unique problems to their locale. In the U.S., the biggest problems are pasture. And what we mean by pasture is places where bees can go and collect food. Your garden would be one of them. The field across the street would be one of them. A field of sunflowers would be another one of them. Anywhere there's a flower that bees are attracted to is considered pasture. And if you take two steps back and think about how much blacktop have you laid down in your local community in the last five years, and I'm going to bet it's way more even than you think, but a lot of pasture is disappearing for development. It's roads to the new development, it's shopping center parking lots, it's all of those things that used to be flowers and now is blacktop. The other part of it is that the crops that farmers are growing are not very attractive or not at all attractive to bees. So there can be acres and acres and acres and acres, and there are, of corn out there. And bees don't do much with corn. They may collect a little pollen from it, but they get no nectar. And the other half of that equation is that farmers have to protect those crops from other insects from eating them, so they have to use pesticides. And pesticides are meant to kill insects, and bees are insects. So you've got that problem. So you've got diminishing pasture, you've got the threat of agricultural pesticides. And the last thing that you've got going on is predators. And there are several things in the world that eat honeybees, that love to eat honeybees. Kim, have we reached a point where bees are endangered? So are they in danger of disappearing? Probably not. But are we looking at maintaining the same population of bees? Absolutely. It takes more than a million colonies to pollinate all of the almonds in California every spring. And considering the fact that we have less than two million colonies in this country, you can see where that may go. It's the same thing with apples and with all of the fruits that bees pollinate, they will no longer exist. So will bees exist? I'm kind of going out on a limb here and I'm saying, yes, bees will probably continue to exist. Will they be a manageable livestock? Probably not. So the beekeeper's role is to step in, just like a farmer's role is to step in with cows and sheep and chickens and make sure that these outside forces don't overwhelm the population and we can continue to have a population. Other than having hives in our backyard or a garden or a tree and not using pesticides, are there any other relatively easy things that normal folks can do to help bees? Well, there are several things that are, I'm going to say minor, if one person is doing them, but if every person were kind of coordinating their efforts at the same time. One thing, and I'll, you'll find this probably just a bit odd, but bees need water. And if you're very careful about making sure your faucets don't drip outside and your, your hose isn't leaking and you don't have a bird bath because you don't want bees in your bird bath. And 
all sorts of things that you can do to provide water that wouldn't be bad in your yard, but would help. And that sounds really simple. But think about where you live right now and where is there free water that bees can visit and collect and take home that isn't contaminated with some local product, pesticide maybe from somebody's lawn, or runoff from a sewer or something, or water from running off from an agriculture field that's got pesticides in it. Where can bees get safe water? That's really simple, but it's really complicated. And the other thing is grow some flowers. Plant a flower, feed a bee. Anybody can do those two things. Just a container garden would help. I don't have a yard, but I have a balcony, so I could put pots of flowers on the balcony. Kim, is there anything else that you suggest we do to help the honeybee? Well, there's two things, actually. One of them is if you don't want to get involved with bees at all and you kind of take three steps back every time you see them, but you really know that they're necessary, you know, you can help support your local beekeeping community. Almost every city, certainly every almost every county has a beekeeping association. And they do things that you can participate in. You can go to the honey sale that they have every year, that sort of thing. Or farmer's markets, a local beekeeper at a farmer market. It costs money to keep bees. You have to buy the equipment. You have to buy the medications to keep them healthy. You have to buy more equipment because now you have more bees. All of these things cost money. And if I'm able to sell my honey and make more money than I'm spending, life is good. So do anything you can to support your local beekeeping community. And the best thing that you can do from my perspective is become a beekeeper. And I know that's not going to happen. There's only about 120,000 beekeepers in the U.S., but I'd like to see it 120,003 after today. I would too. And I can't have hives, but I can certainly support my local beekeepers. And I'm on that. Kim, I always like to ask every guest at the end of their episode what new thing they've done or discovered lately that they'd like to share with listeners. I can't wait to hear yours. <laughs> well, it kind of has something to do with bees, but not really. I, of course, have lots of people that I know that live locally that have bees. And I have a, have a friend who keeps bees, and he introduced me to one of his friends one day when we needed he needed some muscle to move some bees. So me and his other friend came over, and we picked up his hive and got it on his truck. And I got to know his friend, and his friend was a retired airline pilot. And he hadn't been retired very long, but he had started teaching people how to fly and teaching people how to glide. And he just asked me one day, he said, how'd you like to go up in a glider? Have you ever been up in one? And I got to be perfectly honest, I had never once in my life thought about going up in a glider. It just wasn't on my radar. And I'm thinking, you know, you only live once. So I said, yes. And he took me up in a glider. I sat in the, the two-person glider. I sat in the front, so I had the best view. And we went to uh, the airport here, and he took me up in his glider and flew around looking at the local city. We're in a city next to Medina here, and did really high, did really low. And then he said, okay, are you ready for a somersault where you just oh. do a, lot, a loop? I've done a fair amount of big plane flying in my life. I've been on lots of planes, and I wasn't too concerned. And he apparently knew what he was doing because he was still alive. <laughs> and I said, sure, let's give it a go. And he did. we went up and we did a loop completely around. And it was one of the most exhilarating feelings I've ever had. 
And then he said, okay, let's see how high we can go. So we did what he needed to do, and we went up as high as he could possibly go. And then he turned the plane around, and we fell. And I'm watching the ground come closer and closer and closer, and it gets to maybe twice treetop level, and he levels it off. And we come in and turn around come back and land at the airport. So doing a loop and doing a free fall on a glider is something I'd never done before. And I may think about doing it again. Wow. I love that story. Were you exhilarated and frightened or not frightened at all? Well, I'd be lying if I said there wasn't a little bit of adrenaline (laughs) flowing. Yeah. (laughs) But like I said, I've been in planes enough and I knew him well enough that I wasn't hardly at all concerned. How's that for close? You trusted him. (laughs) I did, yes. I like that. That's a big new thing for today. Kim, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been fun being here. I always like to talk these. And that's it for today's show. Thank you to Kim for offering his expertise, and I wish him a very happy birthday. If you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you did, I hope you'll listen to other episodes and spread the word about this new show. A huge thank you to Brian at Top Tier Audio for his advice and guidance, and thanks to you for tuning in. And remember, I'd love to hear from you if you discover a fun new thing. My email is pam at whoimettoday.com.